Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Governor Tony Evers, along with the Environmental Protection Agency, announced the start of a new of new federal funding to assist municipal investments in wastewater and drinking water infrastructure. This includes $143 million that can be used to replace lead service replacement and dealing with PFAS. That money comes from the federal infrastructure bill passed last year. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders will be campaigning in Wisconsin the weekend before Election Day, that's November 5th and 6th, to help turn out young and working class voters here. A top priority for Senator Sanders has been electing Mandela Barnes. Sanders has allowed the Barnes campaign to use his name to send out fundraising emails, reaping at least half a million dollars, according to a Sanders advisor. The senator will make stops in Eau Claire, La Crosse, and Madison. It's not known if Barnes will make joint appearances with Senator Sanders. Last December, two local radio personalities were cited for sneaking into the Capitol to erect a small Christmas tree (coughs) adorned with ornaments that poked fun at GOP legislators, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The charges against the two and their producer were dropped when their lawyer notified Dane County District Attorney Ozan that at the same time his clients were playing a Christmas prank, 10, quote, fake electors from the GOP were secretly meeting in the Capitol. There, the fake electors were preparing fraudulent papers stating that Trump won the election in Wisconsin. The GOP's fake electors were not charged, despite the fact that their illegal presence in the Capitol was widely known. District Attorney Ismael Zan said in an email that the case was dropped because the prosecutor handling it thought that, in the interest of justice, a jury trial was not warranted. You might want to stay on alert walking around Sun Prairie this winter. The Sun Prairie City Council has legalized snowball fights. Yes, Channel 3000 reports that a little-known ordinance actually listed snowballs on a compendium of, quote, dangerous missiles. The ordinance was changed to remove snowballs from that list last night. But you might want to keep your lookout for arrows, stones, and other projectiles which are still on the list. GOP gubernatorial candidate Tim Mickles is calling to split the Department of Natural Resources. The Wisconsin Examiner reports that Mickles said at a meeting of the Milwaukee Rotary Club that he thought the DNR was broken. He said that the department's role is to serve, quote, businesses, people that pay taxes, taxes, people that want to expand their business, along with hunters, end quote. He suggested breaking the DNR into two parts, one for businesses and one for hunters. Mickles did not mention any of the numerous environmental issues handled by the DNR. Today was the last day to register to vote by mail or online. Well, it's obviously too late to register by mail at this point. You can still register online until midnight tonight. But even if you miss that deadline, don't worry. There are more opportunities to register and vote. In-person early voting begins next Tuesday. You can register to vote at your polling place. Early voting will then continue until the Sunday before Election Day. The Madison City Clerk reports that absentee ballots are coming in fast and thick. The clerk sent out 33,000 absentee ballots, and as of of this morning, more than 15,000 have been returned. Those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories.
As Madison's need for more housing continues to grow, Willie Street neighbors were glad to hear that a local developer was planning to build a new apartment complex on the historic street. But earlier this month, that development hit a snag when they tried to combine two plots and expand the historic neighborhood boundary lines. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has more. A city commission tasked with managing Madison's historic buildings, landmarks, and neighborhoods is holding up a plan to build new apartments on Willie Street. That, in and of itself, is not entirely unusual. What is unusual is that the proposal has been rejected despite broad support from the neighborhood. Last Monday, the city's landmark commission voted to reject a developer's plan to merge two land parcels to build apartments. The snag, one parcel of land at 826 Williamson Street, sits in a historic district. The other parcel of land at 302 South Patterson Street does not. Both are owned by Madison Development Company, Dondi LLC. And if the city were to combine the parcels, they would then also have to expand the historic district to contain the new Patterson Street plot. That's not something the Landmarks Commission was willing to do, and the main reason the commission rejected the plan. The decision came despite large community support for a merger. Both the Marquette Neighborhood Association and District 6 Alder Brian Benford, who represents the area, both registered in support of the combination. Marlisa Kopensky-Condon is the chair of the Preservation and Development Committee of the Marquette Neighborhood Association. She says that she is disappointed in the Landmark Commission's decision. We're well aware of the fair share of density that our neighborhood needs to carry in order for Madison and our mayor to meet our goals. And um, we have every confidence that the Warren family, who've been very collaborative with the neighborhood for over 50 years that they've been doing business is approaching this development thoughtfully and respectfully with regard to the various city documents that guide our development on the isthmus. Earlier this year, a similar proposal from Dondi to merge two properties, this time at 826 Willie Street, was approved by the Landmarks Commission. But in this instance, both plots were small and within a historic district. Heather Bailey is the preservation planner with the City of Madison. She says that the plot combination was denied last week because that would have expanded the historic district to include the Patterson plots, which didn't fit with the neighborhood. It made sense to expand the boundaries of a historic district to include additional historic resources. But expanding the boundary of the historic district in order to accommodate new construction that isn't really what a local historic district is, is about. This decision does not block Dondi from building on the two properties, Bailey says. Instead, it just means that they cannot build one big building on the properties. If they move forward with a redevelopment proposal for that property that's outside of the local historic district, they can build a much larger building than what would meet the standards for the local historic district. So I think there are some pluses and minuses uh, for the developers to look at uh, how they proceed forward. But Dondi would not be able to build something else in their proposal, an underground parking garage. That's not possible, they say, without merging the two plots.
Chris Warren is one of the owners of Dondee LLC. It limits kind of the configuration that you can do as far as your, you know, where the building goes, where the driveway goes, where the access is to, you know, get to the to the parking underground. Um, and so just with with one building, you'd get rid of, you know, half of those. You'd still have four on one building. But it, it just gives you a lot more versatility in, you know, laying out laying out the building. Bill Connor is the executive director of Smart Growth Greater Madison, a coalition of real estate developers in Madison. He says that this is just an example of unnecessary red tape for developers and could put the entire project in jeopardy. It makes it so you can't do a project of a large enough scale that it works economically. So what it does is says you got to, if they're small parcels, you got to leave them small parcels and figure out how to do a redevelopment project, one little building on each parcel. And that doesn't work economically frequently. Chris Warren of Dondee says that the project will live to see another day. He says that he may appeal the ruling to the Common Council or may opt to build two smaller developments. Warren says that there is no design layout for the development as of yet, as they are waiting for a final decision to be made on what the plot will look like. If all this seems complicated, remember that this is a more streamlined process for building within a historic district. Earlier this year, the Common Council approved a plan to standardize and simplify the standards for building in all historic districts. The purpose of this measure Heather Bailey told the Wisconsin State Journal in March, was to make these standards clear for all users. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Next week, UW-Madison's Memorial Union will play host to a talk by Matt Walsh, a conservative commentator and self-described theocratic fascist known for promoting anti-gay and anti-transgender views. Part of the money for that talk is coming from the Associated Students of Madison. That's UW-Madison's official student governance body. For more on the story, here's our reporter, Andy Barrow. On Monday evening, conservative political commentator Matt Walsh will be giving a talk on his recent film, What is a Woman? Walsh's film purports to feature interviews on the topic of womanhood. Produced by far-right news outlet The Daily Wire, it features selectively edited interviews with trans activists and academics. Walsh, who describes himself as a theocratic fascist in his Twitter bio, was hired to produce content for The Daily Wire in 2017. He had frequently aired misogynistic and racist views in his earlier work, including professing a belief in white replacement theory. However, after joining the Daily Wire, Walsh pivoted towards increasingly transphobic content. In his tweets and films, Walsh now refers to transgender individuals as, quote, mentally deluded sexual perverts, quote, and accuses doctors who prescribe medically valid gender-affirming care of being, quote, child abusers. Most of the funding for this talk has come from Young Americans for Freedom, a national right-wing political organization. The YAF is a project of the Young Americas Foundation, a conservative outreach organization that does not disclose the identities of its donors. Former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker is the president of the Young Americas Foundation, while former Vice President Mike Pence is the foundation's Ronald Reagan presidential scholar. The UW System branch of YAF is a Registered Student Organization, or RSO. Because of this, part of the money to pay for the talk is coming from the Associated Students of Madison, UW-Madison's official student governance body. 
Here's Grace C. Nelson, ASM's Grant Allocations Chair, explaining why they gave YAF the funds. So they apply online and then we hold a hearing to discuss it. And the main three um, things of criteria for the event grant are, one, it has to be open to all students on campus, um, which this event is. Um, two, that it is in line with their RSO's mission, um, which my committee deemed that this event was in line with the Young Americans for Freedom Wisconsin Chapter's mission. And three, that it provides an educational component um, by having this event, um, which we also deemed in our hearing that that was um, sufficient, like the evidence that they provided. Um, so for because they met those three pieces of criteria as well as like every other piece of criteria in the eight pages, but those are like really the three that we question them on in these hearings, um, we approved this grant. At the same time, Nelson emphasized that she and her office are bound to a neutral viewpoint, the definition of which is up to the United States Supreme Court. She said this has been a difficult situation for her and her office. The last thing that anybody wants is that they're for to like, for there to be arrests that happen, for there to be violence that ensues. And like, that's why we are encouraging people to like go to these safe spaces that will be held on Monday. Yeah. Um, And to give, I mean, honestly, to give this speaker as little attention as possible. Yeah. This controversy has taken place against a backdrop of rising threats directed at university faculty and administrators. In 2021, Pennsylvania State University professor Pete Hatimi was harassed and threatened with violence after a private email in which he criticized the YAF went public. A YAF spokesperson claimed the group was not involved in the incident. At the University of Chicago in Illinois, a filmed incident in which a black administrator asked a group of students to move their table off the sidewalk and onto the nearby grass was written up under the headline, quote, UIC administrator shuts down no more Che display, threatens disciplinary action, and posted to the YAF's website. The article includes the name and a large, prominent headshot of said administrator, and closes with the line, quote, Whatever happens next, YAF is committed to supporting the leader of the students and his fellow freedom fighters at UIC, unquote. The group has continued to follow the same playbook even when tolerated by university officials. Walsh was allowed to speak at an event at UW-Superior back in April. The meeting was not disrupted, but Young Americans for Freedom still accused university admins of planning a counter-protest. Another chapter from the same organization in Fresno, California, is suing the president of Clovis Community College after the school allegedly banned their promotional posters from indoor buildings on campus. Walsh's speaking tour is part of a larger effort by the Daily Wire to spread conservative ideas to young people. The site made headlines earlier this year when it announced a $100 million expansion into producing cartoons and other children's programming. Walsh has also authored a children's picture book called Johnny the Walrus, which compares being a transgender person to believing oneself to be a walrus, and which was previously number one in Amazon's listing for LGBTQ books before being recategorized. UW-Madison's Gender and Sexuality Campus Center will be screening films and holding an all-day Trans Community Day event at Union South to counter-program Walsh's talk. Reporting for WORT, this is Andy Barrow. The time is now 6.21, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Come November 8th, there will only be one name on the ballot for the 63rd Assembly District, Robin Voss. 
But that doesn't mean he has an easy race ahead of him. He faces two write-in challengers, one Democrat and one anti-Voss Republican. The race has come with twists and turns, with flying Voss effigies, worries about primary recounts, and leaked phone messages. To learn more about the Assembly Speaker's not-so-easy race, WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with Adam Rogan, editor and reporter with the Racine Journal-Times. This is just a portion of their conversation. You can find the full interview online at wortfm.org. All right, Adam. So we're back again uh, talking about Robin Voss's election race, where uh, he, he will be the only name that will be on the ballot on November 8th, but he's he's not the only one in the running. So just to sort of remind everyone of the situation over there, tell me about his uh, two write-in opponents, Adam Steen and Joel Jacobson. Yeah, so Robin Voss, who's the leader of Republicans in the state assembly, he's the longest uh, serving uh, assembly speaker in state history. He has he barely stayed off a challenge of the primary from Adam Steen, who was uh, again who was um, got really close. I think it was within the two, I think it was 280 votes somewhere thereabouts uh, in August um, of winning the Republican nomination. Um, he was boosted by a, a late endorsement from Donald Trump, who was. Um, decided to endorse Steen after Robin Voss repeatedly refused to, you know, um, attempt to overturn the, uh, to, I should say, to recall the election results from two years ago. Um, with Robin Voss refusing to do that, Donald Trump kind of turned against him. Michael Gableman kind of turned against him, um, leading to kind of elevate M. Steen, who was this outsider candidate um, who'd only run for uh, public office once before and didn't get out of the primary then either. Um, and then, so we have this new conservative face um, in Adam Steen, um, and then he's and then on the on the left side we have Joel Jacobson, who's run for office a number of times. He's lost to Robin Voss in each of the last two assembly cycles. He used to be an alderman. He's a um, again he's he's a more traditional candidate, even if he is also right in. Um, I'm sure the Democrats are kicking themselves for not having someone on the ballot, considering how contentious the uh, Republicans have been. But Joel Jacobson is kind of betting that even if Democrats don't have the majority of votes in this in this part of the part of the state, they might be able to to kind of steal a seat here if Adam Steen is going to able to kind of siphon enough votes away from Robin Voss. I mean, this, yeah, I'm glad I'm living and working here right now because it is as interesting of a race to cover as there is at least anyone in Wisconsin right now. And so now a lot of this interview is going to be about Steen, and we're, we'll get into the reasons for that in a little bit. But just to just to give a little bit of more attention to maybe uh, Joel Jacobson there, what what has his campaign been like so far, and how how is he faring against both uh, Voss and Steen? It's uh, in this in District sixty three, which is um, uh, the kind of rural half, uh, more or less the rural half of Racine County. Um, that's obviously really generalizing it. It is very much uh, Republican territory. It's it's the city of Burlington and Union Grove, which is a village, very rural, very conservative voters. Um, and this is the district that, again, really, it's it, the conservative. The conservatives got the majority. Trump won it by by a huge margin in the last couple of presidential elections. Um, and Joel Jacobson is, again, as a Democrat, he's always known himself to be a long shot candidate. Uh, two years ago, d- Democrats put in something like $700,000 com- um, combined with the months. Boss spent more than a million was spent in this assembly district just to try to unseat Voss and to protect Voss. Um, and <laughs> Joel Jacobson, I think, was in with in 18 points or something. It wasn't even close. And he wasn't much closer than he had been two years prior. Um, 
And so Joel Jacobson's been building his campaign, really around uh, the right to choose and abortion issues, which especially in this district isn't necessarily a winning argument, but it's, again, it's, it's in line with a lot of how a lot of Democrats are running. Um, and again, there's, it, it's an interesting because it's still an assembly. So it's not, you know, televised debates and these guys are going door to door. Adam Seaton going door to door a lot. Um, and Robin Voss is, is probably the king of going door to door. He's incredibly good at getting out and shaking hands with the voters. Um, and again, that's the, the, the election, the campaign is being run in a very much normal way. It is, even if it's atypical of one person on the ballot, but three people running, it is, it's, it's three guys getting the message out there, getting signs out there and shaking hands. And so now let's get into Steen a little bit. So I know yeah. that he had some uh, phone calls leak out uh, earlier this week. So just to just to sort of start things off with this, uh, how did these calls leak out? Uh, why were they recorded and uh, who who sort of brought them out? So this is a lot of this. Again, I had a write up about it based on a report that Wisconsin right now had. Wisconsin right now is kind of is this, um, as the name implies. It is a conservative uh, online news outlet focused on Wisconsin. Um, they, that website, again, it has a lot of influence, even if its readership isn't as big as a lot of the traditional news outlets, insofar as it has been able to really push a very uh, effective narrative of the number of paroles that have been um, issued under the governorship of uh, Tony Evers, um, leading to a lot of the fire behind Tim Michaels' um, campaign in trying to unseat Evers. Um, and also for Rob, uh, Ron Johnson in trying to uh, keep his seat against Mandela Barnes. Um, and that's, again, it, it is an influential website, even though if it, it's not necessarily as uh, well read as a lot of the traditional news outlets. And then on Monday morning, they had a report of, um, they'd gotten, one of the reporters had gotten access to a number of leaked phone calls um, that were recorded through some kind of app that the scene campaign had been using to coordinate. And then there was, um, again, allegedly a member who had, and scene has not denied any of this, um, admitted to, uh, taking some of these recorded phone calls that were recorded by this app for the uh, so-called planning purposes and then showed them with Wisconsin right now. Um, in, in them, there are a number of statements where uh, a, a, one supporter told seen that like a lot of your vote, these voters are so stupid because they're supporting you only because of the Trump endorsement and for nothing further than that. And seen kind of agreed um, which doesn't necessarily look good when he has been repeatedly talking about how important the the Trump campaign endor- the Trump ca- endorsement has been to his campaign. I spoke to him on Saturday, and he again mentioned how like how his, his campaign would not have the juice it does if it weren't for the former president's endorsement. Um, they're trying him, and also if you know Mike, the my the quote unquote my poll guy Mike Lindell have been trying to get Trump to come here for uh, for a rally. It doesn't seem like that's going to happen, especially with election day just a couple weeks away. Um, but the, so then these leaks, from, there's another, there's a couple of misogynistic comments, uh, a joke about uh, 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 menstruation cycles, shall we say, that, that Steen laughed with and enjoyed. He told another supporter, like, you're a woman, but you're logical, um, implying that, of course, women can't be logical, which, of course, they are as logical as men and oftentimes more so, I would, in my experience. Um, and so the, the they don't necessarily make him seem look good, but he said that this is a, uh, a stunt by the Robin Voss campaign. He's, he believes they're behind this leak. Um, that's unconfirmed. Robin Voss hasn't spoken on this issue at all um, since it came out. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily a good look for the MC campaign, but he still has a fire and he's still pushing forward with this campaign. It's going to be really interesting to see how it wraps up in the next two or three weeks and how all these votes are going to shake out. 
Definitely a race to keep an eye on uh, coming yeah. into November here. Uh, well, I've been talking with uh, Adam Rogan, editor and reporter with the Racine Journal Times, about the race between Robin Voss and his two write-in challengers, Adam Steen and Joel Jacobston. Uh, you can read all of Adam's reporting on this matter over at journaltimes.com. Adam, thank you so much for talking with me. Appreciate it, man. God bless. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Pheasant Branch Conservancy is one of our area's premier protected habitats. On this week's Parks and Landmarks, feature contributor Sean Bull takes us for a trip to Middleton to explore the park and preview an upcoming event. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks. An exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. As a semi-professional reviewer of the outdoors, I have mixed feelings about Middleton, Wisconsin. The good neighbor city bumps right up against the western edge of Madison, but it's not always a seamless transition between the two. For instance, as things stand in 2022, Middleton isn't a great destination when taking a bike trip from the capital city. Their network of bike lanes is incomplete, leaving some roads downright dangerous to navigate on two wheels. This isn't exactly the purview of my show, but it is worth noting I take a more positive view of their trolleys. Middleton is, of course, serviced by the Madison Metro bus network, but the city operates their own trolleys as a way to boost tourism. There are no rails. Rather, these are small buses, outfitted to look like streetcars of old. On select hours, they run a loop between the Middleton downtown, the Greenway Station shopping center, and every hotel in the city. The trolleys are aimed squarely at people from out of town, on business trips trying to get them to spend money locally during their downtime. Much like with Middleton's airport, I can't help but question how necessary this is, just how many visitors does American Girl pull in. But it's whimsical, and free, and there's nothing preventing the rest of us from taking the trolleys for a spin. Or at least, there wasn't. Apparently, the Middleton Tourism Commission has also been pondering how worthwhile the trolley is. At the end of the month, they're ending regular service, and the trolley will be relegated to appear only on special occasions. With the end of this quirky take on transit, people who want to explore Middleton will be left once again with the incomplete bike lanes, a lackluster use of their Mendota lakefront, but also some of the best city parks in the region. I did say my opinion was mixed. Despite their other shortcomings, Middleton has curated some great parks. The crown jewel of these is Pheasant Branch, a conservancy of hundreds of acres centered around a stream of the same name. Those of you who've spent any time on the west side are probably familiar, but Pheasant Branch is a complicated park, and a lot has changed within even the past few years. Today, I'd like to simplify the recent news and get you all up to speed before letting you know about some upcoming events at the park. First, an overview. As its name suggests, Pheasant Branch isn't a stream with one clearly identifiable path. Rather, it's a web of branching channels 
which collect water from the remnants of Middleton's wetlands and funnel it out Lake Mendota. Though it's all the same body of water, I'm going to split it in two for the sake of structure and clarity. Let's start first with the west branches. The west parts of Pheasant Branch flow sluggishly at first, finding gaps between the gray expanse of Middleton's industrial zone. Any runoff from the Middleton Airport to Greenway Station is brought together in a small confluence pond. It then flows east in a single stream under the Beltline, where it begins to carve a canyon out of the residential part of the city. This western stream is probably the most surprising feature of Pheasant Branch. The forested terrain around Middleton's schools and homes gives way to sandy slopes secured by undergrowth. The canyon isn't huge, but it's deep enough that you can almost forget you're in the heart of the city. A paved path winds down its center, intertwining with the stream, crossing it at half a dozen bridges over the rough mile this trail covers. In the late summer of 2018, the west side was hit with massive rainfall. Flooding was widespread, and Lake Mendota couldn't discharge excess water fast enough. The Ahara River surged beyond its banks and flooded whole blocks on the Isthmus. You probably know all this if you were in Madison in 2018, but you might not know that one of the places that all that water came from was Pheasant Branch. So much of the ground on Middleton's west side is paved, so not much water got absorbed before being dumped into the streams. The western branches swelled and shot water through the canyon. The damage was overwhelming. The canyon walls eroded at an alarming rate. Chunks of the path were swept away, as were some of the bridges. Six years and hundreds of thousands of dollars later, the city is still repairing the effects of that single rainstorm. The Pheasant Branch Trail and Canyon more or less end at Century Avenue. The stream goes under the street, and you have to jog over to a crossing, maybe 20 yards down the sidewalk. On the other side of the street, you start down a gravel trail into the woods, and the Conservancy really opens up. The main section of the Conservancy is a big chunk of land. It's two miles long on one edge, and three quarters of a mile wide. Most of its terrain is a big, flat valley, with forests in the south giving way to wetland in the center, and prairie to the north and remaining perimeter. A gravel trail encircles the whole thing, except for a swampy bit of forest traversable by boardwalk. I shouldn't oversell its size, but this is one of the very few city parks that actually seems big enough to be a decent refuge for wildlife. On any given trip around the loop, you might be lucky enough to see deer grazing, eagles nesting, or hear the distant call of sandhill cranes. There are few trails into the inside of the perimeter loop. For the most part, Pheasant Branch Conservancy is content to let one of Dane County's last unspoiled wetlands do its thing in peace. However, an exception had to be made for the groundwater springs. They're too cool to appreciate from a distance. A short spur leads to a deck, overlooking a shallow pool of clear water. No matter how many times I see it, it's always fascinating to watch cold water seemingly boil up from the sand at the bottom of the spring. This one is particularly good as it's not just a few small outlets. Dozens of springs all go at once, pouring water out to the world above. Nearby signs say that natives considered springs sacred, that they viewed them as portals to the underworld. It's not hard to see why. Another sacred site lies just to the north. 
Pheasant Branch Conservancy is more or less flat, with the notable exception of a large conical hill north of the main walking and biking loop. This section of the park transitions to prairie, and the only way to the top of the hill is a mowed path between tall grasses. The hill is crowned with large oak trees, and at the very top, a few native burial mounds. You can't see them, as they're obscured under grass and wildflowers, but you're going to be too distracted to care. It's immediately obvious why the first people picked this spot. Not only does it overlook the sacred springs, it feels like you can see the world from this vantage. From the lookout on this hill's south side, you can see all over Middleton, across Lake Mendota, to a view of the isthmus and capital skyline that few get to see. Where the story of the western branches is that of recovery from the floods, the eastern branches' recent developments have been much more positive. In 2019, Dane County purchased the former Acre Dairy Farm, doubling the size of their portion of the conservancy. I didn't mention this earlier, but Pheasant Branch isn't just a city of Middleton Park. Middleton owns the whole west part with the canyon, and most of the east too. But there's a block on the very north of the east section, which is actually a part of the Dane County Park system. Functionally, this makes little difference. Although if you walk your dog through this section, you technically need to buy a Dane County dog permit. It's inexpensive, and is something you should have anyway if you like bringing your dog places. But it's something to be aware of. Anyway, Pheasant Branch added a new piece of property, and the county has already completed a lot of work on the site. All traces of the farm are gone. All the buildings and trees have been removed. Half of the land has been restored to native prairie and wetland, and the rest is on track to be completed over the next two years. To be clear, there's still improvements to be made. The restored prairie has the same mowed grass trails as the older section of County Park, but they aren't pleasant to walk on yet. The ground is still hard and uneven, compacted from years of being run over by cows and tractors. Still, it's exciting to have a new part of the park actively being worked on. I look forward to seeing how it develops over time. Speaking of things to look forward to, Pheasant Branch is hosting a couple events in the coming weeks. The fourth Saturday of every month, Madison's Friends of Urban Nature hosts an educational walk at Pheasant Branch. This month, the walk is Halloween-themed. Though it starts at 1.30 in the afternoon, it focuses on spooky creatures of the night. Those interested don't need to register. Just show up this Saturday at 2600 Park Street in Middleton. If you can't make this one, there will be another nature hike along the creek, Saturday, November 26th. I'll try to link more information online at wortfm.org. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wartfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the <coughs> airwaves with W-O-R-T weather guru, Rob McClure. 
Well, observe first of all that I got the sky forecast for yesterday completely wrong, which was fine since I had predicted cloud cover much of the day. Well, the short-term computer models ended up getting it exactly right with the cumulus and stratocumulus holding just to our east over Dodge and Jefferson and Walworth counties. So we managed to climb to 46 degrees here yesterday, which certainly exceeded expectations. Cloud cover today worked a little farther inland in the morning, but with a thinner moisture-bearing layer and bone-dry air up above 5,000 feet or so, we were able, with the aid of uh, fairly brisk gradient winds once again, to mix the clouds out by shortly afternoon and again get the thermometer up into the mid-40s. The clouds in question are those associated with a deep upper upper low that's uh, swirling vigorously just to our east, the downstream half of a ridge trough couplet in the upper air that, uh, as I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast, is bifurcating the continent basically west and east with the southbound polar jet between those two components dragging continental polar air masses down through here from the Canadian archipelago. There's a nice visual of that process taking place over the past few days on the water vapor image of North America that's linked on the WORT weather webpage. Though the pattern is slowly beginning to break down now and move eastward, the image is a nice one uh, also because it makes obvious how uh, when so much of the energy of the atmosphere is being directed in the north-south orientation, there's so little energy available to push the waves that are thus created eastward. And it also provides an idea of the amount of thermal mixing that takes place between the Arctic regions and the tropics when the upper air pattern becomes so strongly amplified like this. One further thing that's clear from that uh, water vapor image is that it's uh, going to be a little while yet before the big upper ridge that's over the western half of the continent edges eastward over us, at least another day or so. Uh, But despite the many north-south channels of uh, upper winds on that image, towards the end of the loop you can see a more zonal fetch pushing inland off the Pacific across northern British Columbia. That's going to continue eastward across Canada, across central Canada, cutting off any Arctic air connection for the next several days, actually. While a stronger pulse of winds, uh, which is still well off screen to the northwest, lines up to deepen an upper trough over the west coast. This will be along about mid-weekend or on Sunday. And that upper trough feature has been looking quite vigorous on all the longer-range models. And the downstream response over the plains on the models has been to deepen a robust surface low-pressure circulation, which tracks from around Nebraska or so, roughly north-northeastward over the ensuing couple of days towards Lake Winnipeg and Hudson's Bay. Uh, Increasing southerly flow ahead of that storm will make low 70s a fair prospect for temperatures this coming weekend, at least so long as we can stay clear, or mostly clear. Warm frontal rains look to sweep northward uh, into Wisconsin finally late day or overnight Sunday. And the ensuing three days from there should be quite windy in any event, with the cold front passing later Monday afternoon and largely uh, ending precipitation at that point. But uh, back to tonight, uh, skies will remain mostly clear, though with some high clouds drifting south off the upper ridge to our west. Uh, Those clouds may be joined by passing mid-level clouds uh, through a later portion of the night. Temperatures will drop to the low and mid-30s on westerly winds, uh, coming down to 48 miles per hour. 
Tomorrow we may see one final round of cumulus or stratocumulus sweeping around that departing upper low uh, to the east of the listening area, mostly, I think, in the morning hours. Otherwise, I think we should just see passing high clouds most of the day. Temperatures will reach toward 50 or so, possibly higher, without uh, too much dimming through cirrus later on. Lighter northwesterly winds will be backing southwesterly then as we go overnight, and passing mid-level clouds are likely to thicken as warmer air aloft begins to push more fully over us. Temperatures will drop to around 40 or so. And Friday, the high clouds should scatter east as the upper ridge presses in and dries the mid and upper levels of the atmosphere. And so that should allow temperatures, I think, to jump well into the 60s, uh, if not up to 70 on Friday. On strengthening southwesterly winds, which will come up to 10 to 18 miles per hour and be a bit gusty as we get into the afternoon... Temperatures will hold somewhere in the upper 40s through the overnight on what will be lighter winds as a weak cold frontal boundary presses at us from the north. But that's going to bounce right back north on Saturday as low pressure begins to deepen in earnest on the plains to our west, cranking the southerly winds back up to 10 to 15 miles per hour by later in the afternoon Saturday. And I think that should take us to 70 or so, again, if uh, skies stay mostly clear. We'll stay warmer then in the mid-50s during a breezy overnight into Sunday, and I think we'll be back possibly to 70 or above on Sunday, given what will be even stronger southerly winds that day. Clouds may be more of an issue, especially later in the day Sunday, and uh, showers and thunderstorms do become a possibility as we get on in the overnight period. At the moment, at the station on Bedford Street, the temperature is 38 degrees. The dew point temperature is 22. Winds are out of the west at 7 miles per hour. Uh, just a few strands of cirrus passing up above uh, 25,000 feet or so, otherwise clear over the station. The barometer's at 29.89 inches of mercury and falling slowly. It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to October 1962, when the City Council decides on a location for the long-planned public auditorium. A high-ranking insider slams the city's urban renewal program, and the Hilldale Shopping Center opens. Stu Levitan has the news you can use from 60 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. All They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, October 1962 Early in the month, the city committee trying to build a public auditorium and exhibition hall has a dilemma over where to locate the facility. Mayor Henry Reynolds who appointed the committee after purging all the former members who had supported a Frank Lloyd Wright design at the end of Monona Avenue, wants the project to replace the old pumping station on West Gorham Street, across from Conklin Park. But Ladislaw Sego, the nationally renowned urban planner whom Reynolds hired to pick a location, recommends a lakefront site back across Gorham, four acres just west of the park, with 400 feet of Lake Mendota frontage. Reynolds is not happy. He calls the lakeside location, quote, a beautiful site, maybe too beautiful. He says it's, quote, so large and pretentious that it would demand a different type of building than what I had been thinking of. 
But Reynolds should not have been surprised. It's the same site Segoe suggested in 1938 when he was hired to write the city's new master plan. One reason the penny-pinching businessman mayor doesn't like the location, it would cost the city about a million dollars to buy and tear down the dozen or so houses already there. He keeps pushing for the waterworks site. The auditorium committee tries to duck the issue, but finally has to make a decision, and goes with the professional over the politician. It sides with Sego, selecting a two-acre site just west of the park, an area within his larger proposal. Reynolds still likes his waterworks plan, but says this site seems to be ideal. Economic development activist Joseph W. Jackson, the man who brought Sego here in 1938, concurs. But it really isn't. Although Reynolds, Jackson, and other opponents of the Monona Terrace site overlooking Law Park criticized it as too small at 3.2 acres, this site is less than two-thirds that size. Surrounded by residential properties, an auditorium here would not spur any further economic activity. Located on a one-way street, the site does not offer easy auto access or nearby parking. And although Reynolds has long insisted he could build the auditorium for not much more than the $4 million voters authorized in a 1954 bond referendum, a prominent Chicago architectural firm sets the price tag at double that, an estimate Reynolds rejects. Still, opponents of the Monona Terrace site, and even some strong supporters, are happy to finally have a presumed path forward. On October 25th, the council votes 15 to 6 to locate the Civic Auditorium on the two-acre site on the hill just west of the park. And even though the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation insists it still has a binding legal contract, the council also votes by the same margin to select a new architect. And now the city waits to see if the ambitious project, authorized eight years earlier, will finally happen. Earlier that day, there was an act of plain and powerful economic activity, opening day for the Hilldale Shopping Center, the largest shopping center in south-central Wisconsin. Delayed by strikes and shortages, the 34-acre center has 26 stores employing around 600 persons, about half of the Gimbel's Schuster's department store. The morning ceremony starts with a national anthem performed by a 20-piece brass band. Freezing winds force the cancellation of a mass balloon release, but don't deter several thousand shoppers. For those who stay late, the 2,000-car lot features incandescent lights with color-coded pastel porcelain shades to help them remember where they parked. And Halloween brings spooky news about the city's struggling urban renewal program. The city's Citizen Advisory Committee a group of mayoral appointees with wide jurisdiction to study and comment on any municipal issue, wanted to check in on the project transforming part of the Greenbush neighborhood into the Triangle District. So it invited Florence Zmadzinski, the relocation supervisor for the Madison Redevelopment Authority, the person in charge of finding affordable housing for the thousand or so people now losing their homes and apartments, to present a report on the state of that effort. It's quite a report, a scathing and sweeping 11-page critique of the MRA's relocation data and delivery. 
Smudzinski says the authorities' adopted 1959 relocation report was, quote, unrealistic about existing housing resources, uninformed about the problems of blacks being displaced, misinformed about the availability of low-income housing, misleading regarding financing, and over-optimistic about developing new housing resources. And she also includes a cultural condemnation, claiming the agency was, quote, unknowing regarding the needs of the people to be displaced. Quote, We have advertised for units and attempted to persuade the community to at least show units to Negro families, but without success, she tells the Citizens Committee, revealing that out of 767 approved housing units last year, only 123 could be shown to non-whites, and most of those were in South Madison, itself slated for a redevelopment program. And it's not just the authority, she writes, but the city itself that is, quote, unprepared, often misinformed, and generally hostile to the relocation program and to the people being displaced by a program that, quote, placed emphasis on the physical aspects of acquisition and demolition without effectively coordinating the human aspects of the program. She charges that city and county welfare agencies, quote, are approving substandard housing even less desirable than some in the Triangle, that, quote, code enforcement is too weak as presently constituted to achieve the goal of standard housing for every displaced family, and that units with inadequate wiring and no hot water, quote, are not always considered substandard by the building inspector. MRA Executive Director Roger Rupnow says he disagrees with certain parts of the report, but lets Zmedzinski issue it without his editing. Committee member Professor Kurt Wendt, dean of the UW College of Engineering, understands the implications when Zmedzinski presents a report to the Citizens Committee on October 31st. This is a plea for substantially increased base of public housing, he says. Without that, we will not be able to meet the relocation demands. It's a fact we have to look squarely in the eye and tell the people of Madison that to do urban renewal, we must have public housing. No such housing has been built in Madison since apartments for veterans were built near Truax Field in 1949. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for us. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Andy Barrow. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Hademan was our engineer. Nate Weggie helped produce the news. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.